This is Michael Roth I'm a student at SUNY Stony Brook, and you're listening to the My OT Journey Podcast. And this is Dr. Robin Axelrod. On my drive to work one morning, I thought, how could I promote unity between OT and OTA students? How could I foster communication and leadership skills? Welcome to My OT Journey Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the My OT Journey Podcast. My name is Michael Roth, and today I'm joined with Amy Baez. Amy has been practicing pediatric occupational therapy for nearly 20 years and is the founder of Playapy, a Miami-based boutique pediatric occupational therapy service that aims to provide stressed out and concerned parents the resources they need. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So the My OT Journey podcast um, may be a little bit different than other interviews you've had before through either Forbes or uh, things like that. We're looking to just kind of hear a little bit about your story. Um, so to begin, uh, I was wondering if you could share any of your experiences that led you to choosing occupational therapy as a profession, maybe even before you uh, got into school. Sure. You know, I wasn't familiar with occupational therapy like most people are until they're introduced to it directly. As a child, I had some members of my family who were in the medical field, specifically nursing. My grandfather, who came from Puerto Rico, wanted all his daughters, four of them, to become nurses. And uh, he succeeded with at least one. Uh, but they all went to yeah, they all went to to a high school that was really geared specifically towards nursing. Mm. And so I knew that that was an option, or what was thought to be what the, you know the path they would like me to go down. But to be honest, I'm a, I'm I'm not squeamish, but I'm just not a fan of biological fluids. And, and <laughs> so it didn't seem like a great option to me. Uh, but I had actually taken a, like a questionnaire in high school that suggested that based on my personality and interests that I would be a good candidate to be either a nurse, a psychologist, or a physical therapist. Mm-hmm. And so I found that really interesting to me. I wasn't really familiar with physical therapy, so that's where I started looking into uh, to therapy options. And I started as a volunteer at a nursing home that my best friend's mom was a hairdresser at. And uh, so that's pretty much where it got started. But particularly for me also, when I was even younger, I just had my own history of medical conditions, and my sister did as well. So I was, from a very young age, not just you know aware that children had difficulties and disabilities or diseases that were causing their experiences to not be typical. So I think that's Hmm. part of the reason why I had uh, some sort of empathy uh, beyond what was, you know, typical for a child for other children who were receiving services. And that's where it got started. I was directly introduced to occupational therapy really when I went on college tours. So Hmm. I went to actually do an interview at Duquesne University, which is ultimately where I went. Mm -hmm. And I was set to go into physical therapy. And when I was there, I was also visiting the University of Pittsburgh that happened to be having a health sciences fair that same weekend. 
And I had, to be honest, I had no interest in going to the university. But my cousin was actually dating uh, a guy who went there at the time. And so I I just happened to be there. And I pretty much just fell in love with OT instantly just from that fair and seeing all the different adaptive equipment and all Mm. gadgets that they had. And, And I just was like a whole new world opened up to me. And I remember going to my interview and asking them, like, can I change? Can I change my major? And I was afraid that they weren't going to accept me then because I didn't have any hours volunteering for, mm-hmm. for OT. And they just reassured me that, you know, everything was going to be okay and that my, my PT volunteer hours would apply yes. uh, just fine to OT. And uh, so that was really where I got into it. I, I think I just love the idea of just, like, gadgets and, and um, the creativity and the craftsmanship, mm-hmm. things like that. I, I have... Uh, side hobbies of being like a maker type of person where I, I, I like to create things. And so that is really where the, the OT kind of spoke to me at that moment. Yeah, I think I think you're. I can relate a lot to your story. Um, I was the same way before I went into OT school that I thought physical therapy was the direction that I wanted to go. Um, similar to your experience, uh, I had family that wanted me to go to the medical route, um, and I realized that that wasn't necessarily where my passions lied. Um, and I always was drawn to the therapies uh, for similar reasons that I have a younger brother with. Um, medical needs and who received physical therapy um, and it kind of got me thinking that I would like to work in a profession where uh, you can do a lot of good and you can help people live happy productive lives um, but then when I you know started volunteering uh, at a local hospital by me um, that was when I had that aha moment that saw OT and saw occupational therapists and what they did um, and uh, kind of, you know, took hit the ground running from there. Uh, and I think that experience is, is pretty common as far as the field goes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you uh, first got into uh, Duquesne University, uh, what was that transition like? Uh, was it easy for them get-go for you? Was it challenging? Um, can you just tell me a little bit about the your college experience? Sure. Well, it, it had its challenges. Well, first of all, I wasn't uh, – my parents weren't exactly thrilled <laughs> for me <laughs> to go there specifically, uh, just because – mostly because it was a private institution and they were concerned mm. about student loans because I was the one who was funding my education. And – so that, that was one thing. They were just concerned about that. And, you know, after all these years, I realized why they were concerned about that. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I, I was on scholarship for the most part, I still, you know, I really incurred a lot of loans when it came to graduate school. Mm-hmm. So, so there was that. I, it also was farther away from the, you know, our hometown. I lived in New Jersey. My family did. So it was at least, you know, a good five, six-hour drive away. That mm. was really what intrigued, intrigued me, though, because I wanted, to be, I wanted to be far enough that I couldn't just go home over the weekend. I was very independent and, and mm. wanted to experience college life in that way. So for me, it was challenging in that aspect, like just the financial aspects of it, having to work during those years as well. 
uh, I didn't have a lot of experience with family going to college either. I mean, my father had graduated from college, but he went to school in Puerto Rico, which was a different experience for him. But aside from that, you know, my mother went to college for just a couple, I think, weeks and then decided it wasn't right for her. So there wasn't a lot of experience with uh, college in my family. So I didn't have a lot of people to ask those kinds of questions, you know, uh, especially, you know, living on campus and things like that. But, and, and then the other major issue that I had was just I had a lot of health problems. I started to experience a lot of issues secondary to some autoimmune disorders that I had as a child when I was going through school. So that was another aspect to, to deal with. And then um, ultimately the, the biggest challenge I felt too was just the difference between Pittsburgh versus, you know, South Jersey, Philadelphia area. I, I didn't anticipate that it was going to be that much different. I figured, you know, they both start with a P. They're both yeah. in the state of Pennsylvania. You know, like, <laughs> Just a place, what's the big yeah. difference between, yeah, what's the big difference between Philly and Pittsburgh? And it was really different for me uh, culturally. I came from a very diverse um, experience in South Jersey, and I, I just felt it was very challenging for me in that sense when I got to Duquesne. Mm. It's a private school. There was a really small minority population there. And, and then aside from that, I just felt like there was a lot of uh, just like racial unrest in, in Pittsburgh at the time and maybe even still so. And so I just, for me, it just became very apparent and it wasn't something that I really experienced much of in, in high school or as a child. Mm. In, in, I, not in that same way. Yeah, and I think that that's uh, you bring up an important point that uh, in in school that it's not just your didactic learning that's important. That uh, a lot of the the growth that I'm sure has impacted you as a as a occupational therapist and as a person was from all of that extra living stuff. You know the the difficulty uh, integrating um, into the culture. Of the of the city and of living on your own, um, how do you think how do you think those uh, personal experiences impacted your education at Duquesne University? Well, one of the things I, I just I feel like I had to learn how to make the experience better for myself. If if people mm. weren't going to to create it for me, then I had to create it. So. One of the things that I did while I was there was I helped to form a Caribbean and Latino student organization. And so really looking for other people to to help have someone to talk to and engage and just be able to discuss these types of things with really helped a lot. I think the primary thing that really helped me, though, is actually having a professor who was Latino. And... That was a huge difference for me, specifically in the OT field. And I think he really helped me to realize that I wasn't crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought, especially when I thought that cultural differences was an important subject in OT, I didn't see that the, the other students in my class really valued that in the same way that I did. And so having a professor that did and did really helped me to to navigate around that in other ways and mm -hmm. 
he kind of showed me where I could take a different approach to how I would discuss with my peers things like this that I wasn't really aware of, Mm. uh, where I could maybe I was coming off a little bit too strong for them or too abrasive where I, I felt that it was necessary and he kind of you know, with his own experience, was able to, to tell me other ways. And, and, and I actually still have a relationship with him to this day. Mm-hmm. And when I've, I'm able to email him and, 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 you know, get his advice. And so he still serves as a mentor to me even after all these years. So to me, that was a really great help. It's really finding other people to, to help me along in that journey. Yeah, and I know that there are a lot of um, students who will be listening to this podcast and uh, people who are looking into occupational therapy as a profession, and I think you bring up a really important point that uh, finding a mentor and creating uh, professional relationships um, really does wonders for uh, both you as a as a burgeoning professional and uh, as just kind of like a person that deals with adversity. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't even have to be someone who's directly in your, you know, in your scope of practice. For, mm-hmm. for example, he, he was more so focused on mental health, not pediatrics. So, you know, he was a mentor in other areas. It doesn't necessarily have to be in your exact, you know, chosen, you know, area of OT that you want to focus on, you know, mm. pediatrics versus geriatrics versus hand therapy, things like that. Now, I, I have to ask, too, uh, considering um, everything you said about uh, the challenges that you faced in school, what did it feel like to get uh, the Practice Leadership Award at the 25th OT <laughs> Department Anniversary at Duquesne? It was really... It was really such an honor and, and very surprising um, at the same time. I, I was really thankful for it because, like I said, when I was there, I had my own set of challenges. And uh, even so much so that I, I think in my senior year, I was having a lot of health issues that many people and most people had no idea were going on. And I ended up at one point, even on academic probation <laughs> for a semester, and, and had to work very hard to, to, to graduate with honors. Mm. And, uh, and uh, ultimately I did. And, you know, because of those challenges, I, I didn't qualify for, you know, the honor society for, for the, the therapy um, mm. department and, and things like that, where I was disappointed at the time. And, you know, so those things may make you feel like you're not, you know, maybe you're not good enough or maybe you're not at the top. Um, so, but to to just go on through the years and just kind of, you know, forge my own path and then to, to be recognized for what I was contributing and then contributing was just really great to, to have that kind of recognition. So I was really appreciative of that. Yeah, that's such an incredible story because it's, I think it's so important um, for people to realize that you really can, you know, overcome and that, you know, there are, uh, you know, second chances and third chances and fourth chances uh, where you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and really make an impact. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that you uh, were willing to share that with me. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. 
Um, so tell me a little bit about uh, when you graduated school. Um, did you immediately take your NBCOT and go straight into pediatrics? Did you work in a different area at first? Um, tell me about what that experience was like for you. Sure. For the most part, it was directly into pediatrics. That's what I wanted to do. I did my three weeks of, I'm sorry, three months of field work in pediatrics my graduate year. And I actually did it in, in Miami, which is ultimately where I wanted to be and ended up moving to. So I was really fortunate enough to have that three-month experience of living in the, uh, a new city. But when I first graduated, I was I don't want to say discouraged, but I was warned that maybe it wasn't going to be so easy to, to find a job in Miami. So I was applying around in different areas, but I knew ultimately I needed to move somewhere warm. And I, I, uh, I ended up getting an offer just a few weeks after graduating. And then when I got here, I, you know, did all the things you need to do when you first move to a city. I had to find a place mm -hmm. to live. I got furniture. I got a cell phone, all those things. <laughs> and, um, and then I was told that it wasn't a full-time position mm. after I had signed all these contracts and even had to get a new car because I had totaled my car on the way back from <laughs> an interview. <laughs> and uh, so I was in a position where, I had all these responsibilities now, and I had to figure out what I was going to choose. So I actually started out working per diem for three different companies Wow! And just to, just to figure it all out. And I was traveling some days 60 miles in between, uh, in between clients. So I worked a little bit in pediatrics and adult low vision therapy. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and so, and then eventually, I think within six months, the case rate had increased in the pediatric location that I was able to just work on that exclusively. So, and that's been what I've been doing ever since. So, so mm -hmm. I kind of fell into being a bit of an entrepreneur, solopreneur type of situation you know, not intentionally, but I never ended up being a full-time employee of, of any, uh, any company. It just, mm -hmm. you know, that's just how it started out, and it just kind of remained that way. So I, I learned how to do that almost accidentally. Mm. So uh, I, first off, I, I am envious of your warm weather. It is a brisk 34 <laughs> degrees in New York, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, and... I think that uh, I do want to speak a little bit about um, you are quite open on uh, your your website and uh, on YouTube, uh, communicating a little bit about uh, what burnout was like for you. Um, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, when you when you realized that uh, you were experiencing burnout um, and whether or not it came all at once or it kind of crept up on you, uh, just a little bit about that whole experience. Sure. I felt like it happened uh, sometimes in a way happened almost in, initially. And I don't know if that was necessarily burnout, but I just didn't know how to handle emotions. Mm. So when I was working with uh, some of these children and families, it, when I first started, I was dealing with a lot of very sad stories, and I just didn't know 
who to talk to about them. Because I was brand new to a city, and you know, it's not something that people want to chat with you on the phone with exactly, a lot. Yeah. So, <laughs> Uh, so I, because I'm a very creative person, I used writing as my outlet for that. And mm-hmm. just around that same amount of time, I started performing as a spoken word artist in Miami. And so I would share those stories on stage. And I mean, obviously mm-hmm. leaving out any sort of details about people, but just the idea of some of the things that I was going through and, and those experiences and that was an audience that was really wanting to hear it, surprisingly. Yeah. So, uh, so that really helped me a lot. But then in terms of more burnout, I think it was just that I, I felt overall where I, I noticed that I wasn't like reaching my potential in mm. a sense where I didn't feel like I was doing as much as I would really want to. And, and part of that was just, you know, personal, you know, personal things in my life, or also that I was, you know, restricted by the healthcare system in terms of how I could treat patients and, you know, that type of thing. And so for me, I really struggled with, you know, do I, should I be staying in this field if I don't feel particularly passionate about it? Uh, a lot of that, too, was that I was being pulled in, in other directions. Because I was very artistic and creative, I, I have a lot of uh, f- friends that are, are the same way. And so I wasn't really spending a lot of time with other therapists. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like, well, maybe I should be doing something else that is more creative. And, you know, when I was a child, there was all kinds of things that I, I wanted to be, and most of those things were were create you know creative careers and I didn't necessarily say oh I wanted to be a therapist so but the thing that I liked about OT in particular was that I felt like it was probably the most creative of the therapies at least in my opinion mm-hmm. I'm sure other therapists might disagree <laughs> <laughs> from, from other professions but I truly felt like it was the most creative so uh, so in terms of dealing with burnout I, I really had to step aside and say to myself, like, is this where you should stay? And so Mm -hmm. one of the things that I did in particular was I noticed that the AOTA conference was going to be held in in Orlando this time where I was dealing with this, you know, struggling with this idea. So I decided I was just going to drive up there, and if I left there feeling uninspired, then that was going to be like my sign Mm. that I needed to to, to find something else. And, uh, but I went there and I did feel inspired and it was particularly at the expo that I felt that way. And I think it was just all the energy of all the entrepreneurs and inventors and creators that were in the room, all the authors and just, and that's when I realized it's like, Oh, I can be create more creative. I just need to look at things from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And, you know, put my creativity more into into my role as a therapist and the skill set that I had and, and maybe even combining, you know, that artistic side of myself and, and putting it more into what I'm doing on a daily basis. And so that's what I started to work towards doing and, and shifting, uh, shifting my mindset. 
Hmm. And now, was it after the AOTA conference that you uh, started thinking about um, designing your handwriting workbooks, or uh, was did that come a little bit more organically through your pediatric uh, work? A little bit of both. I mean, I remember when I was at the conference, I had already started thinking of some things, but I didn't necessarily think of publishing them. I was just kind of doing it on my own. But I remember being at the expo and, and picking up a product and thinking, I already I thought of this idea. I already mm -hmm. had this idea in my head, but someone else like beat me to it. <laughs> and so <laughs> I was like, well, you know, what else can I, you know, what else should I be focusing on? So I had already been developing um, parts of the handwriting program, but I hadn't created like a full prototype at the time. I had just, you know, started creating the elements of it. But that really sparked me to say, you know what, let me create a full-blown like prototype book and then, you know, work on it with my patients and see, see, this, where, see where this goes. And, and from there, I started being asked, oh, are you going to publish this? This is really working. And, and, and then that's when things moved along more, more quickly. Yeah. And I think that, that uh, you know, you really did, did catch lightning in a bottle in a way uh, in that you were, your handwriting program won the 2013 Creative Child Magazine Book of the Year Award um, and has a lot of success. Uh, for people listening in, can you just give a little overview of what you designed, um, the, your handwriting program? Sure. So it's, it's pretty simple, and it was designed that way. I wanted to create something that was easy for parents to use as well as therapists and teachers. So I, I didn't want there to be a barrier of requiring training uh, or a lot of uh, like a training manual. Uh, in order to to follow just a very simple concept, and you know, in some ways that's, that was really good, and in some ways it's not so great when it comes to, I would say, in, in terms of business. I mean, in business, you want to create more products for people to buy. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. So, but for my purposes, that wasn't the I, that wasn't the problem I was trying to solve. I was just trying to help children. So the reason why I created aspects of it was because I was working with a lot of children who were very young, who were three and four years old coming into a clinic and, and being asked to help with handwriting. And I was thinking, well, this is really strange because they're too young for this. And mm -hmm. so but they, are, they were experiencing what I, what I refer to as preschool pressure, where they are being asked to perform skills that are well above their age level. And so I had to find ways to make this easier for them, not to give them those expectations, but to really help them with their foundational skills in order to prepare them for when they were. Mm -hmm. And so what I was doing was I was using what I refer to as action words to help them do that. So I was associating a simple phrase with a direction of a stroke. Um, so, for example, if they were drawing a line horizontally from left to right, I would say zoom across. Mm -hmm. So I was giving them an action to follow. And what I noticed is that it, in order to create the uppercase alphabet, all you really needed was seven action words, and you could create any letter of the uppercase alphabet. And that made it a lot simpler than some other programs that were out there where I felt like there was a lot of stories that are created around a letter 
and uh, just different approaches on, on groups. And, and what I created was also based in groups, so it was really supported by what works in research. But the difference was really giving them those simple phrases that directly associated with the stroke. And so I was referring to that skill as, the, as, as par parroting. So what I later branded the program as the PALS Handwriting Program was actually an acronym. Uh, standing for a parroting action learning system. So, so that's where it started. And so currently it has two workbooks. It's one called the Treasure Chest, which is for uppercase letters, and then Head, Tummies, and Tails, which is for lowercase letters. And the uppercase book really focuses on letter formation, tr uh, chest being an acronym for the different groups that they're placed in. And the head, tummies, and tails really focuses on letter alignment, which is what most children have difficulty with when it comes to lowercase handwriting. Hmm. But you know, in altogether, it's really meant to be very simple. It just has like a one-page introduction in the beginning of the book, and any parent can kind of follow along with it without feeling that they needed to be trained in how to to use the program. Mm. So it's 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 a easier access point than say something like handwriting without tears. Um, tell me a little bit about what the parents' uh, reception of the book has been. Um, have you had any uh, like any like one experience that stands out um, of a parent coming back and and really gaining a lot from the Pals Write Handwriting Program? Yeah, sure. So, uh, when it, especially in the beginning, one of the parents that I was using the book with when I first started was very enthusiastic about it and actually encouraged me so much that she would go to her child's preschool and talk to the owner of the school and insist that they had to use the program as well. <laughs> and wow. so, so that was really helpful. And I ended up doing workshops at the school as well and, and just training the, the staff not only on uh, not so much just the books because, like, again, they don't require them as training, but just foundational skills and, and understanding like what the correct expectation should be of a, of a child of that age. And that helped me to really go on to do more presentations on a local level and then state level and national level. So I really gained a lot of experience from that and a lot of positive feedback. And to this day, I, you know, they're still using the programs, the books in that school. And I've had even a preschool all the way in California that regularly orders. So that's been really encouraging as well. So I, when you have a repeat buyer, that, that really helps uh, to know that you're, you're doing something right and they like it. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's important, too, that you know, your, your aim was to, to make a difference. And I think uh, you know, based on, on that experience and, and the people who are still gaining so much from your book that, that you made that impact. Um, yeah. I want to speak a little bit about uh, what it was like going back and uh, presenting at the AOTA conference. Um, how did that feel going back to, uh, you know, the place where, where that innovation spark started uh, and, and being on that floor? 
Yeah, sure. What Actually, what a lot of people don't know is that I actually did a performance at AOTA many, many years ago when it was in Miami in the early 2000s. But that was a totally different experience. That was I think it was for a diversity reception. It was was a spoken word performance. And so coming this time around, doing something that was more academic was really important to me just professionally. I've always wanted to to speak there. And I had applied in the past but never with the option of doing a poster. And I was encouraged by that same professor that I discussed earlier to really uh, really try and, and go for it and, and enjoy that experience of really talking to people more directly than when you're doing a larger presentation. And I, I, under, I, I really loved both experiences. So it was really interesting to just kind of share with people and see their reactions to what you're doing. And, and one of the things that was really fun for me is I try to add a little bit of playfulness to presentations, and specifically since my company has the word play in it. <laughs> so what I did at uh, this particular conference, especially for a poster that was called Handwriting Hacks, is that I put game into the presentation. So I literally was was rolling dice with on the floor of the conference with other OTs and having them act out different um, exercises and different strokes and uh, you know that were associated with mm. the program and also with the poster. So it was really fun to do that and have that experience. It's so reassuring to uh, hear you say that you incorporated some some action to your posters. Uh, I think, especially hearkening back onto the beginning of our conversation, part of the reason why uh, a lot of the OTs that get into occupational therapy uh, started looking at, at physical therapy or nursing first is I think because there's a, a significant optics problem with the profession, um, and we don't do enough to to show and demonstrate um, how to how to perform what we do and and engage in occupations. Um, so it's it's good to hear that uh, you didn't just just uh, lecture people at your poster that you actually had them had them doing things because that's you know what what we as OTs do. <laughs> right. Well, that and it, it really creates a memorable experience for them, and I wanted them to have something to really take away. So. Even when they were there, I had them sign up for a list, and I, I and sent them a, a PDF of the actual game that we played. And, you know, most people have a paradise somewhere in their house. And so it was something that they could easily use in their practice immediately without having to buy anything. Mm-hmm. And, and that was both a game for gross motor skills and for visual motor skills. So... So it was nice to be able to give give back in that sense. Yes, yes. I know that uh, OTs are always looking for inexpensive ways to improve their practice. So <laughs> I'm sure they were very yes. thankful for the uh, the, the provisions. Um, yeah. Tell me, tell me a little bit uh, about uh, Playapy. I know we, we have touched a little bit on it so far, um, but uh, just just talk to me about what, 
owning your own business has been like um, and, and that experience for you? Sure. So as I mentioned before, I kind of started out as an entrepreneur indirectly when I first started. And, and so but that was a little bit different. I mean, it was like technically I'm self-employed, right? But I wasn't really attacking it in the sense of marketing a business. So one of the things that I did in particular was changing my business name. And actually it was one of the things that I suggest in the other presentation that I did at AOTA was based on a a model that I call Innovate and a, a marketing technique. And one of the things in that Innovate model is Innovate is an acronym and the N one of the ends stands for name, and the other one stands for niche. And so one of the things that I did in particular was decide to change my business name after many years. So I used to be called A to Z Pediatric Therapy. And at the time, to me, it was very clever because my name started with an A and ended with a Z. <laughs> and so here yeah, I thought I was being super clever, but it was a very generic name at the same time. There was other A to Z therapies. Uh, even in the same state, on local local states. So it wasn't a, a name that I could use nationally, I felt. There was no sort of name recognition that was going to come from that. It was just too simple and, and too overly used. And so in developing a business that I wanted to market more nationally in terms of also having product, I wanted to come up with an original name. And so playathy is really a combination of the word play and therapy put together. And one, it was a unique name. So I had all the handles for social media. You know, I was able to get the website, really simple, the .com. So little things like that really make a difference. And they help you to help people to remember you and you stand out more. So, so those are some of the things that I, I had to consider. But aside from that, I, it really spoke to what I felt was important. I, I really feel like parents have a hard time understanding how to play with their kids in a way that's going to benefit them developmentally. And mm-hmm. so that is the primary focus of my business is really teaching parents about how to play with their children. And so that education aspect is really important to me. I don't have a clinic-based practice. I go into homes and I go into some schools, uh, but primarily I see children in their home environment. And that really allows me to use the tools that they already have in their home and show them how to look at them in a different way, even if it's something as simple as a cushion on the floor. Like they never realized that they could use that cushion to, you know, improve balance and strength and coordination. To them, it was just something that you sat on. And mm-hmm. now, you know, it becomes a boat or, <laughs> or something else, you know, in the child's imagination. So that's been a primary focus of, of, of my business in, in that sense. And also, it's just been incorporating that into, like I said, into social media and using different aspects like video, uh, YouTube videos and, and writing in a blog and posts on Instagram and articles on Facebook. So I've, I've tried to use all different types of 
communication in order to get a message out. So even if it's not my direct patient, I can still help other people on a larger scale, which really is what I felt like I was missing out on when I wasn't uh, reaching that potential that I talked about earlier. One of the reasons why I wanted to, to do that was so that I felt like I had, I was reaching out to a larger audience so I could help more people. Mm -hmm. So how does it feel to, uh, I guess, if you were to compare uh, your work as an early, you know, fresh out of college, a pediatric occupational therapist, and the work you're doing now, um, what are the, what are the things that you feel um, really speak to you in, in uh, the work that you're doing now? That's a good question. You know, in some ways it can feel somewhat similar, but I feel like now I definitely have a lot more confidence in my opinions and what I'm suggesting to, to parents. So there are still some days where I feel like I don't know what to do here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I'm, I'm working it out, you know. But for the most part, I feel like I have a lot of tools and I've, I'm better at recording things down so that I don't have to rewrite a book every time I talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. So I've done better at creating my own like handouts and worksheets and things like that. Um, there's also a lot more opportunity to pitch questions to other therapists when you're on, you know, Facebook groups. Like that didn't exist when I first was a therapist and that could be tremendously helpful to, to just kind of have like a soundboard where you're asking other people, like, what do you think about this situation? Or maybe you're not even seeking out questions, but you find it to be an interesting topic and you think other people might find it useful. So you might just present you know, a scenario and say, you know, I don't really need help on this, but I think this is an interesting conversation that we should all have. And mm. so I've really enjoyed that aspect of, of being a therapist now compared to, you know, almost 20 years ago where that did not exist. You really could only talk to your own peers. And for someone like me, it's challenging to do that when you're the OT. Right, like yeah. I have a really small business, so I don't have a lot of other other therapists that I can can talk to unless you're working in a clinic where there's a lot of other therapists. So for me, the social media aspect of of discussion groups has been has been really interesting and helpful. Hmm. It's it's uh, I'm sure that now you're now having your own business and being connected with groups on Facebook and. Uh, other social media sites and having a website um, is is revitalizing and, and keeps you engaged and excited about the profession. Um, but hearing everything you do and seeing all of the uh, resources that you have on your website, um, it must still be challenging to find balance um, and, oh, yeah. and you know keep your head above water. Um, I yeah. want to speak a little bit about, uh, you know, the, some of the occupations that you do um, to help you prevent that same kind of burnout. 
Sure, yeah. I, I think that's really an important point to bring up because in all of that also comes a lot of responsibility that can cause a quicker burnout. <laughs> yeah. you know, there's, there's times where I have to say, you know what, maybe I'm not I'm going to take a, a little break from writing a blog to focus on something else, you know, and, and really being aware of what my own strengths are and what I take joy from. And so one of the things that I am really diligent about in my life is making sure that I, although I tend to be a bit of like a workaholic, I'm still very much committed to not only working. And if I am working, it's working on something that I find very joyful or is directly related to improving my skills in like an artistic sort of way. So I have volunteer projects in in my city that I'm very committed to. Um, one in particular is an organization that supports women artists. And I've been a part of that group for for 13 years now where we look we find different women artists and we promote them. And and most of it is revolving around their voice and what kind what voice they have in this world. And so that's been really important for me to let out a lot of my own uh, creativity and interests and uh, so that that's something that I do on a yearly basis. Mm. Also attached to that is a a woman's brunch that I host in memory of my sister who had passed away during my time of being a therapist. And that for me has been very therapeutic um, as well as important in terms of creating like a, a a feeling of sisterhood in my life. So there's, there's projects that are really important to me that I, I spend time on. And even though I could use that time to be, you know, relaxing on the beach or reading, reading a book, um, I, I, I still put my energy into those other things, including my own spiritual, my spiritual life and practice and volunteering for organizations that, that help others understand and value techniques and skills like mindfulness. And I learned so much from that that I then incorporated right back into my work and, and help children to understand those concepts as well. So to me, it all becomes full circle because it all helps. And, in, you know, they all kind of feed into each other in a way that's not really obvious to other people but is, is very apparent to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder how it must feel um, to have come from a place when you, you know, first started in the field, uh, you know, we're, we're just getting into school and you had a mentor that was able to um, kind of kind of give a little credence to your voice and, and uh, say that you, you know, what you were feeling was was valid. Um, I wonder how that must feel now to to be able to provide that to others um what's that experience like yeah it it is interesting i feel like it's it's different depending on who you're talking to right mm-hmm. so i feel like a lot of the time i often have to do that for the parents 
that I that I work with. You know, a lot of times parents are very much in need of someone to tell them, you know, that they're not crazy, <laughs> that they're, you know, that what yeah. they're experiencing is valid. Um, so it's it's nice to know that I can be that person to let them know that, you know, that I understand on some level what they're experiencing and how, you know, how I can assist them. If I'm not the person, at least give them someone else to, to, to help them out in that way. And, and also, you know, at times I've had the experience of being a mentor in, in some ways or at least a, a colleague for some younger therapists and, and help them to understand that, you know, everything that they learned in school is not everything that they're going to need to know. And I think one of the things that I felt when I came out of school was, why didn't they teach me this? <laughs> you know, like there's, there's some things that you're like, I don't remember this, you know. And uh, so it's, it's nice to, to be able to validate that that kind of thing does happen, but there, there are ways to work around it. And uh, I enjoy that aspect of being older and being able to share little nuggets of, of wisdom when I feel like they're, they're helpful to other people. Mm-hmm. And I guess in, in, in that vein, uh, if there are any therapists that are listening to the podcast uh, or students who are feeling overwhelmed and uh, losing kind of that spark for OT, uh, what's a piece of advice or encouragement that you would give them? I think it's really important to know what your strengths are and what is really important to you. I think for one of the struggles that I had was really understanding how to navigate around the fact that I'm more of a creative person than uh, than other types of skills. Like for example, I'm really great at balancing a checkbook and did great in math and took honors calculus and all those things, but I have no interest <laughs> in being an accountant. You know, so I, even though you may be good at something, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's where your joy is or mm. what you should be spending your time on. And, and as therapists, we're often in the helper role. But we may have other skills that are leading us towards some other way of doing things. Maybe we don't have to be a traditional pr- practitioner like we were taught to be. You know, some of us may be better at being a manager, you know, and some of us may be better at being speakers. And so that's one of the things that I've come to notice about myself that's helped me to enjoy my career more is when I started to lean more into my side that likes to do public speaking, that likes mm. to, to share on that level, that's not afraid of being in front of a camera or on a stage. You know, there's some people who that is absolutely not for them. And if they were pushed into that role, they may not enjoy their work. So if you do have those types of interests, or maybe you're very creative, like a mechanic type of person, and maybe you are better at creating uh, products or 
or tinkering around with those gadgets that, you know, we all came to become aware of when we first became OTs. So I think in terms of that, and I'm, I'm, the name is skipping my brain right now, but there is a test that you can take that, that helps you to determine what that is. Hmm. I think doing those types of things, understanding like what really your personality, you know, thrives in, that really will help you to, to really enjoy your career more and be on a path where you can excel and stand out and and really love what you're doing hmm. so that that's would a, be my my piece of advice that's such great advice and i and i feel like that's uh you know if there are any therapists listening um going to be really helpful for them uh thank you for sharing <laughs> sure um so if if people wanted to learn more about your company or uh the uh, pals handwriting program um where can they find you yeah, you can find me on playity.com. That would be the website where a lot of that information is. Uh, through social media, I kind of spread out a little bit. I try different things and spend more time on others at times. So I have a, a list of videos on YouTube uh, under Playity. And I, I haven't posted any recently, but there might be a change in that in 2020. <laughs> and, uh, but Right now, I've been sharing a lot more on Instagram. I have uh, a page for Playepi, which I share more of different types of activities and just inspiration in, in that sense that it's geared more towards parents of young children. And then I have my own Amy Baez page, which shares more of the aspects of of being a public speaker and and things like that, uh, and that's the same for for Facebook as well. So I have a page for Playepi. Uh, I share a lot of articles, research, things like that on on the Facebook page and videos. And then I also have a Amy Baez page on Facebook that's sharing more of the other side of things, like in front of the camera type of things, for as a, as a speaker. Awesome. And then occasionally you might see me tweet on Twitter, but yeah, <laughs> I'm not really that great on Twitter except for reading other people's comments. Here. Yeah, I can, <laughs> I can definitely relate to that. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, uh, and sharing a little bit of your journey with us. Thank you. I'm, I appreciate it. I'm glad that I, you find it interesting and I was really intrigued on how much you knew about me. I think, you know more about me than some of my own friends do. <laughs> <laughs> I try to do yeah. my research. <laughs> you, did uh, it. you did a great job. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you to the student contributors. If you liked it, please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook at MyOTJourney and on Instagram at MyOTJourneyPodcast. Thanks for listening. Go OT!